Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, we're continuing on this week with our series taking a look at people throughout history, and especially recent history, who responded to great injustices and responded to their circumstances by doing amazing and wonderful things. And some time ago, I saw a video of a man, it was, it was a BBC YouTube clip of a man named Sir Nicholas Winton, and he was talking to an interviewer, and the interviewer revealed partway through the interview that the woman he was sitting next to was actually a woman who was saved by his actions during the Second World War. And you, they embraced with tears, and, 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 and Sir Nicholas Winton just looked overwhelmed. And then the woman said, is there anybody else in this room who owes their life to Sir Nicholas Winton? And the camera panned out, and the whole room, everyone in the room, stood up. Now, what Nicholas Winton did was so complex and yet so simple. He simply did what he could in the circumstances that he had. So he went in 1938 on vacation to Prague, and there he saw camps where Jewish people were fleeing, and he saw that there was almost no one to help all these Jewish people who were at great threat of their own lives. So he was working at the London Stock Exchange, and in the remaining time, he began to work tirelessly to save Jewish lives, obtaining permission from the British government for children to enter the country. He provided that they had a foster family to care for them, and a small sum of money as a guarantee. And he and a small group of others found these families to take in the children. They raised the necessary funds. He spent countless hours organizing passports and travel documents. And because of his work, eight trains carrying a total of 669 Czechoslovakian Jewish children made the journey from Prague to London where foster families waited. Their return tickets were never used because by the time the war was over, most of them had no family members left to return to. And the only reason these children were alive was because Nicholas Winton's efforts had got them out of danger soon enough. But in spite of this, Nicholas Winton never saw himself as a hero. He said, I just saw what was going on and did what I could to help. That's what he said. That alone, that statement makes him exceptional. He didn't know these children. He simply saw what they were going through and did his best. But in 1939, in a letter he wrote, he explained what he was actually trying to do. And he said, there is a difference between passive goodness and active goodness, which is, in my opinion, the giving of one's time and energy in the alleviation of pain and suffering. It entails giving out, finding out, and helping those who are suffering and in danger, and not merely leading an exemplary life in purely passive way by doing no wrong. Now, I've always wanted to actually speak with uh, Sir Nicholas Winton and interview him, but uh, he's in his 90s now, so he's too old to do an interview by phone, and he lives in Great Britain. But his daughter has written uh, quite a wonderful book on her father. And that book is called If It's Not Impossible, The Life of Sir Nicholas Winton. Now, rather than for me to tell you more details of, of what's in this book and to tell you more things about what Sir Nicholas Winton did and the impact he did, uh, I called Barbara Winton, Sir Nicholas Winton's daughter, and had a conversation with her about the legacy and life of her father. And this is that conversation. So could you tell just our listeners a little bit about uh, your father's story? Right. Um... Well, the story started in 1938, 
My father was 29 years old and was working in the stock exchange in London. Despite that, he was a very fervent left-wing person in terms of his politics, and his friends were also left-wing, and they spent a lot of time talking about what was going on not only in England but in Europe politically. Uh, His background was that his parents were racially Jewish, so they weren't religious. But nevertheless, he had seen his family family members coming over from Germany in the mid-1930s, escaping from um, what was going on there. So he was aware of the atmosphere um, that the Nazis were creating. So um, in... November 1938, there was Kristallnacht, and just before that, in September, there had been the Munich Agreement, which had given the Sudetenland, uh, the borderlands of the Czechoslovakia, to Germany, and they had occupied that. And that had caused a huge influx of refugees into the centre of Czechoslovakia, not just Jewish people, but uh, politicians and others who were fearful that the Nazis were going to arrest them. My father had been due to go on a skiing holiday with a friend of his, also a left-wing person, who was a schoolmaster at a school in London, and they were going to take uh, a group of schoolchildren skiing, my father helping out, and they'd done this before. But just before Christmas, my father got a phone call from this friend, Martin Blake, to say that um, he'd cancelled the skiing trip, and he was going to Prague, and my father should follow him to see what he was up to. My father, having got the two weeks' holiday already booked, um, uh, just before New Year, flew out to Prague to see what Martin had got himself involved in, and arriving there, discovered the city in turmoil, filled with refugees, desperate people trying to get out of the country, away from the Germans, who they felt would be coming... uh, nearer to them pretty soon. A lot of them were in a very bad state, having left their homes without any uh, belongings, and it was the middle of a very cold European winter. And so my father saw all this desperation going on. Um, He met Martin, and Martin was working with a woman called Doreen Warriner, who was representing the British Committee for Refugees from Czechoslovakia. And her role was to try and smuggle out the endangered adults from the country. She'd set up um, an escape line through Poland, and Martin was helping her with that. Um, My father saw what she was doing and went around and looked at what other agencies were doing in Prague. They were giving money and assistance to the refugees in terms of food and so on. He could see that there were children who were not really being focused on in terms of help to get them out, and, and, and saw that parents were begging for help to get their children out, knowing that they may not be able to escape. So he went back to Doreen after a a few days and said, um, I'd like to help and I'd like to concentrate on trying to get children out. And she was delighted because it wasn't really within her remit. And she said to Nikki, well, I don't know what you'll be able to do, but if you want to have a go, then have a go. So that was the starting point for him. He'd arrived and, and fairly soon decided that rather than just look and see what was going on, he wanted to try and do something for the people who he could see were in such terrible distress and probable danger. So he spent two weeks in Prague. Pretty soon the the networks 
uh, of refugees discovered that there was someone who was thinking about trying to get children out and making lists of, of endangered children. And they started coming to him in his hotel and at the office where the uh, British Committee for Refugee from Czechoslovakia was set up, um, asking if he would put their children on his list of names. After three weeks um, in Prague, he went home. He had to go back to work. He'd already taken an extra week, um, which hadn't been authorized. And when he got back, he spent every evening, he finished work early at the Stock Exchange, um, working on his plan. He, the first thing was to check with the Home Office whether they would allow unaccompanied children in. They, they had agreed to let in the larger German kinder transport in because that was being done through a big organization. But he didn't know at the time whether they would allow you know, individual children in from Czechoslovakia. Right. But he's, and that was what he had been told would be impossible. He discovered that it wasn't impossible at all, that they made two conditions and that was all. They were difficult conditions, but not impossible. The first one was that a £50 deposit had to be found for each child. I don't know how that translates into uh, Canadian currency, but at the time it would have been about £2,500 in British money. Oh, wow. And that was to help with the repatriation of the children at the end of the danger, whenever that would be. And the second uh, condition was that a foster family be found who would take care of the child uh, for the duration of however long it was necessary. So he set about trying to find money and find foster families. At the same time as he was doing that, um, uh, another volunteer who he had met briefly in Prague, Trevor Chadwick, who had come out as a schoolmaster himself, to take back two children that his school had sponsored to look after. And he'd said to Nicky while he was out there, if you can get this sorted, um, I'll come out and run the Prague end while you run the English end. So he'd said to Trevor when he'd spoken to the Home Office, right, we're on, and Trevor had gone back. So Trevor was busy compiling the lists of children and organising trains, and my father was in England writing letters to all the different refugee organizations all over the country, letters to various newspapers and magazines, telling them what was needed and the problems and what was going on in Czechoslovakia. Um, he wasn't alone. There were other people doing that. There was Eleanor Rathbone, a well-known MP of the time, who was also very concerned about the Czech situation, mm -hmm. and a, a Unitarian minister called the Reverend Rosalind Lee, who was also writing lots of letters about it. But my father did that, and he began to get responses, people who said they would take children. So by uh, the middle of March, he had his first transport organized. Um, that went out, I think it was on the 13th of March, and the next day the Germans invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. So from then on, Trevor and Doreen were working under Nazi uh, occupation. What she was doing was highly illegal because she was smuggling out the adults that the Nazis actually wanted to arrest. But they weren't bothered about the children being taken out. In fact, um, they stamped the visas that Trevor provided them with quite happily. Um, he managed to build a relationship with the Gestapo leader in Prague, and they were relatively happy to sign the papers and let the children leave. Um, so through the summer, 
my father arranged eight transports out of Prague, uh, seven trains. The first one was an aeroplane. In the middle of all that, Trevor had to leave because uh, he was obviously helping Doreen with what she was doing in the evenings. And they're not quite sure why he had to leave, but it seems likely that um, the Germans had cottoned on to that. And Doreen had to leave very quickly to avoid arrest, and Trevor left soon after. But there were other officials from the UK in Prague at the time, and they helped continue to run the transportation um, from the Prague end. So by late, uh, by August 1939, these eight transports had left. In On the 1st of September uh, 1939, uh, the biggest transport that they'd organized was due to leave, 250 children on one train. But that day, the Germans invaded Poland and closed all the borders to all the neighboring countries. And so the train wasn't allowed to leave. So that train, unfortunately, all the children were sent home, and as far as we know, most of them ended up in Theresienstadt and went on to places like Auschwitz. Uh, so in, in a sense, that was the end of my father's story. The war started. He had other things on his plate. He initially worked uh, for the Red Cross and later on joined the RAF. And the aftercare of the children was left to his mother, who he had very early on asked to help him with the job. And she looked after the aftercare of the children. If there were problems with their homes, she helped to find another home for them and so on. So that's the story. And one of the things that surprises people with the story is that while what he did was exceptional, it was also very doable. It, it wasn't... It, it was something that people could see themselves doing them themselves? Um, it was interesting because obviously at the time people felt it wasn't doable. He was told that it was going to be very difficult, if not impossible. He was also told by the British Committee for Refugees from Czechoslovakia not to get involved because um, it would cause irritation to the Home Office because the movement of children from Germany was organising the German kinder transport and the uh, BCRC didn't think that they would want another person getting involved. He, um, he ignored them basically and what he did to make himself look official, even though he was working in a sense independently, was he took some of the British Committee notepaper and stuck um, printed children's section at the bottom of the heading and signed himself as honorary secretary. <laughs> so he made himself look official, even though he wasn't. Uh, three months after he had started work in the UK, he got a letter from the BCRC saying, right, we are now appointing you honorary secretary of a children's section. So they had to kind of accept him uh, after about three or four transports had already arrived, and they saw that he was doing it anyway. And Trevor had the same experience his end. How many children did Mr. Winston bring over on these transports? Well, the number on the list is 669. We know that that's not totally accurate because I've met three or four who came out on the transport who said they're not on the list. So we know the list isn't exact, but that's the number we use because that's the number that the list has of names. And we get the list because 
at the end of the kinder transport work, one of the volunteers that my father had in his London office put together a scrapbook of all the, well, not all, but a lot of the documentation that had been made at the time and the press cuttings and some of the photos of the children and letters from parents to children and all that kind of thing and put it all in a scrapbook along with the list of all the children that they had, their names, their dates of birth, the foster families that had taken them and so on, and given this scrapbook to my father as a memento. And it was this scrapbook that became the catalyst for the story becoming public in 1988. And that's one of the reasons the story became so public, especially on this side of the ocean, was that now very famous video of uh, you, your father on television and then realizing the whole room is filled with uh, adults who he had saved as children. Well, how, yeah. did, that, how did that come about? Um, well, a, lo- a lot of these stories get slightly confused over time, and that's partly the reason that I wrote the biography, to try and kind of clarify some mm-hmm. of the stories, um, like the story that... Um, my mother found this scrapbook in the attic and it had been a secret. Well, that wasn't true, but it's become part of the mythology of the story. So I wanted to clarify some of that. But but the um, the TV article, was, uh, TV program, came after my father had tried to find a home for the scrapbook. He thought that it was an interesting historical document and that some organization somewhere would be interested in having it in their collection. And he'd found through the 1980s, uh, he'd spoken to a few Jewish organizations, historical organizations. Nobody really seemed all that keen. But eventually, in 1987, he was introduced to Dr. Elizabeth Maxwell, who was a Holocaust historian at the time, and wife of a very prominent newspaper publisher in our country, Robert Maxwell. Um, He was a Czech Jew himself, and she was researching his family history as well as organizing a conference on the Holocaust for 1988. Um, She was shown the scrapbook and was immediately very struck with it. And she passed it on to the BBC, who decided that they would do um, a a part of a a major Sunday night magazine-type program on the topic. They said to my father they'd like to do this, and he said, fine. And they said, "Uh, well, would you like to come up and you know, watch what we do from our audience. You can have a look and check the scripts, okay, and watch it. He said, well, okay. My mother said, well, that doesn't sound all that exciting. I will stay at home and watch it on TV. It's live. So my father was put in the audience in the front row, um, expecting to watch a short uh, item where the presenter talked about the scrapbook and was totally ambushed when she said, and uh, sitting next to Mr. Winton is a, a woman who is on the list. Here's her name on the list, and here's Vera. You're sitting next to uh, a man who saved your life. So it was a very dramatic moment and uh, quite a shock for my father, who was already 79 at the time. So we were a bit horrified by this. Uh, the next week, uh, he was invited back. Um, In the meantime, you know, there'd been some publicity about this, obviously, with this big TV program and stuff in the paper. Mm -hmm. So many of the children who were now in their 60s, 50s, 60s, had discovered the story, having not really understood how they'd got to England when they were children, and made contact with the BBC. 
So when my father was invited back, my mother thought she'd better go with him that time. Uh, so the following week, they were back in the front row, and that was when the presenter said, would anybody in the audience who uh, was saved by Nicholas Winton get to their feet? That was when, you know, 30 or 40 people got to their feet. Right. And this was the first time he'd met people that were on the, on his list? Yeah. He'd only met one person before, and that was someone who he had been doing uh, charity work with. In, in he he uh, was a volunteer for an organization called Abbeyfield that provides sheltered accommodation for the elderly. Mm-hmm. And he was on a national committee and met a, a man there who had a foreign accent, and they got talking, and the man said he'd come on a you know, a child transport from Czechoslovakia. My father said, I had something to do with that. I'll go and check my list and see if your name's on it. And it was. But um, So that was the only person he'd met before. And um, they remained friends, but they were more interested in talking about what they were doing at the time rather than the history they had. So, What was it like for him to meet people that were on his list and to realize that they would have died if he hadn't done what he did? I mean, my father's a fairly kind of matter-of-fact person. I think it wasn't so much what he realized, it was the way they responded to him, right. which was very emotionally. Um, a large proportion of them, you know, the greater proportion of them had lost their whole family. Um, for many of them, he was the closest they would ever get to a link to their history and their family. So they came to him wanting answers, wanting to hear about what he'd done, whether he'd met their parents, whether there was anything in the scrapbook that would give them more information about their history. And on top of that, they also seemed to want to tell him about their lives afterwards, as if they wanted to demonstrate to him that their lives had been worthwhile. Right. So it was it was a very emotional experience for not only my father, but the children particularly, which then kind of went on for many years, and it still goes on. And has he become friends with any of the people that he's met? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, a few of them live not that far away. Uh, Some, you know, live all over the world. Obviously, in Canada, Joe Schlesinger, the uh, CBC journalist, um, met my father many times, and they're very good friends. But, uh, yes, he keeps in touch with quite a few. Uh, people have different relationships. Some want to know if they're on the list. They, some of them want to then meet him, and some are content with that. Others want to have a, a further relationship, and my father's a very sociable man. He's very happy to see people. What do you think this story really tells people of our generation and our ages? Do you say that in some ways what he did was very doable, but as you point out, he was one of the only ones doing it. Well, I mean, I obviously, I wanted to explore what made him the person he was who did that. Because one of the questions people are always asking is, why did he do it? Why would someone who had a good job and a, and a busy social life go and spend you know nine months of his life doing this? And so that's why I wanted to look into his history and write a biography which explored all those areas of his life. Um, but I think I, th- I feel there were several things that made it possible for him to do it. One was that he understood what was going on, so he had the knowledge um, of what was really going on there. 
he also had a very strong social conscience, um, which he, you know, got from his school life, from his home life, and from his politics. And he had the skills. It, I mean, often I think people want to do something, but they don't really know how to set about it. Right. Um, he, having worked at the stock exchange, he was used to a very fast-moving environment. He was used to being in control, taking responsibility, having a go, taking a chance. Um, and these were all, and, and also being quite organised. So I feel that all these skills were vital for him to actually succeed. I mean, there may have been other people who tried, but they didn't have the idea of quite how to go about it or the nerve to go into the home office, or the nerve to steal the headed notepaper. Um, He also had a character which was, you know, I don't believe in working by committees. They take too long to act. I, You know, I want to do it, and I'm going to do it my way. And that, you know, is the way he's worked all his life. It doesn't always make him a friend. But in this particular situation, it, it worked. And so I suppose what I think we can all learn from it is that, I mean, his motto and what I used as the title of my biography is, if something's not impossible, there must be a way to do it. So I called the book, If It's Not Impossible. Right. His view was, you know, I'm going to have a go. And his having a go happened to be very successful. And I suppose my feeling is that what we can learn from it is, you know, if people feel strongly about something, they should have a go. And it's useful to have other people to have a go with, because obviously he couldn't have done it on his own. He needed somebody at the Prague end um, to coordinate with, and he needed people, volunteers, to help him, and he needed foster families to take the children. So he had to have other people involved. But if, if somebody feels strongly about something and they're willing to have a go and put time and effort into it, you know, maybe it will succeed and... And I think in a world where we all feel a bit helpless about what's going on around us, maybe it's worth just having a go. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your father's story. Pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Barbara Winton, the daughter of Sir Nicholas Winton, the Holocaust rescuer, discussing his legacy and how he lived his life to reject passive goodness in favor of active goodness and reaching out to those around him to identifying a problem, identifying what he could do in response, and then doing it. Some some people think it's such a simple thing to do, and yet they didn't do it. And Sir Nicholas Winton saved 669 Czechoslovakian Jewish children. A wonderful story, and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. My name is Jonathan Van Maren. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week.